And welcome, everybody. We will be taking calls today at the end of the program, so get out there on Twitter spaces. We'll be looking for you there. Also, of course, we are, as usual, on the Restream and the Rumble Rants. Today, the guest is John Littell. Restream meaning YouTube and Facebook. And Twitch. And wherever else you might hear this, Twitter also. Uh, the Hidden Truth, Physician Advice to Women and All Who Care for Them. This is Dr. Littell's, Littell's book. He also made headlines recently when he was escorted out of a board meeting for daring to offer an opinion, uh, which apparently uh, opinions these days have become something that are very threatening and dangerous. Uh, Dr. Littell has been uh, active, uh, not just treating COVID patients, but also educating medical students. And before the mics heated up, we were all sort of sharing ideas about our profession and what has happened to it. And as usual, we are concerned. So we've, of course, got Dr. Kelly Victory here. Uh, we're watching you on the restream and we'll get you on the Twitter spaces. And let's get right to this now. Our laws as it pertains to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin. Ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it, I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. As I said, Dr. Littell will be here in just a minute. So will Dr. Kelly Victory. And I was just listening to that opening. And when I was, I'm recalling what I was talking about when I said that, uh, that uh, our laws around drugs in this country are draconian and bizarre. We have gone in many states now to the exact opposite extreme. So they're still draconian and bizarre, but in a completely opposite direction. And that is, was not what I intended by that statement 10 years ago. So here we are. Again, the government has an uncanny ability to do things worse than uh, any other organization I've ever seen. All right, uh, Susan, you want Your to bring something? Your skin some... is looking amazing today with no makeup, right? right. Yes, Susan yeah. threw this at me yesterday in the middle of the show, the uh, we, red out genius. So I put it on, and you may have noticed that something changed. We all the show. noticed. I said, Drew, what's wrong with your skin? You need to put on some makeup before the show. He said, no. No, and she came said, on. no, no. She said, ew, it looks like hamburger. No, it looks like... <laughs> That's what you said. I said, it looks, <laughs> Sounds like her. it looks like you slid down a ski hill on your face. Okay, much better. <laughs> <laughs> so. It was dry. There were little white flakes. It was bleeding because you shave your face and sometimes... I do shave you, my face. You that shave is it typically really what is shaved. So anyways, during the break, I ran to the bedroom because I just recently got a new container of the red... What's it called? An anti-redness. Can you read it? Uh, Redness Repair. Redness Repair. I said, you want to put that on? Because I know it's the only product that Drew can put on his only face without stinging him. Without getting cysts. He, right. get, he gets in it stings sometimes yep. when you put product on your face when it's that raw. And I saw results by the end of the show. I, it, I couldn't believe it. Well, I, I actually I prepared it before. 
Yeah, I can show you the before Go ahead, and after. Put it up. This is a real quick cut. He, he anticipated this, this conversation. He anticipated yeah, I mean, this. this. It was so impressive. I'm gonna, we're going to clarify. This watch, is watch. a sponsor, but welcome everybody. Susan is already very upset because I I got a little burn on my cheek here from. Uh, Essentially, it's New York water that does it to me a lot of the time. And so uh, she wanted to put makeup on me, and I objected. So now the fact that people are noticing it has her very upset. So I thought we'd get that out of the way right up. I wanted to give you the anti-redness cream. Well, let's let bring it on in. Okay. We'll put it on during the show. It's true. Yeah. There you go. Now, this is not, to be fair, that's a sponsor, but this is not a sponsored yeah, segment. Yeah, look at how raw his skin was. This is a Susan Pinsky segment because she is no, so I'm, expressed. She's I am so a delighted snob when it comes to using stuff on my face. And so are you. You're a bigger snob, no, okay? No. It comes to, they come, you're a snob when you uh, when it comes to you, you using stuff on my face or your face. Well, so. I've tried everything because I, I don't like seeing you All right. that raw. Let, so. Enough. Let's get to it. we got to get to the show, shall we? But it works. Yes. Thank you for that. And we'll be taking calls with uh, myself and Kelly at the very end of the show. But now I want to bring in our guest uh, is Dr. John Little. He's a family practitioner. He is an educator, a uh, medical educator. He also is an author. He has a website, which is John Little, M-D, L-I-T-T-E-L, Littell, rather. Uh, Dr. Littell, welcome to the program. You got it. I'm happy to be here. It's Littell. I know we have just met. It's L-I-T-T-E-L-L, as I've been saying for 60 years. <laughs> That's great. I'm sorry that we're part of the. You know, we need we need the we need the primer. I'm sorry about that, but let let's get to your career. So you're a family practitioner. Have you always been in Florida? What, what's the arc of your career? And because I want to bring it to the present moment, and really talk about how bizarre our present moment is. No, I mean I I start. I grew up in Long Island and a Mets fan. There you go. And I was fortunate enough to go to Cornell. Neither one of my parents went to college. I, I mean, it's uh, my goal since I was six years old was to be a doctor. You probably might have had the same aspirations, Drew and Kelly. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. I, I love the profession of medicine. I, I just I, I knew as a child there was nothing I wanted to do more important than that. I was privileged to be able to go to George Washington. In order to pay for GW, I joined the Army. Uh, so I spent seven wonderful years in the United States Army Medical Corps, did a lot of amazing things with them, and spent a year with the National Health Service Corps in Montana, two years in Michigan, both under the employ of hospitals. Wow, that was a mistake. And then I thank God I got mm. recruited to Florida in 1998 to work in a very large independent practice. And I've never looked back. I went on my own solo in 2003. And that's the trick. That's the ticket, being solo, being independent. Yeah, uh, I, I myself have been practicing medicine since uh, 1988. Uh, I did work for a hospital. I worked for a psychiatric hospital. And I had leadership positions in hospitals, and I taught medicine and psychiatry the, the whole time. I know you taught family practice. Is that where you were teaching? Oh, yes. I, I'm board certified in family medicine, and uh, there's nothing I haven't done thanks to the great training I got in the Army, to be honest with you. So I delivered babies for 25 mm -hmm. years, still do women's health care, newborn care in the hospital. I'm the only doctor here who does pediatric inpatient care, including the pediatricians who stopped going to the hospital. Matter of fact, most doctors stopped going to the hospital in most specialties in the last 10, 15 years. And so I'm kind of a dinosaur yeah. in that I, I will not I will not let my patients be in any hospital that I can conceivably get to. So I, I, I go through a lot to keep my privileges up at, at uh, major hospital systems in the area, two in particular. 
Yeah, in internal know? medicine, they go to great lengths to squeeze you out and have the hospitalist take over. I, I walked the hospital you know, floors for 30 years doing inpatient hospital ICU. We used to manage everything in the ICU. We didn't need a intensivist. We did it ourselves. That's, we did that for years and years. And they're not even training them in that any longer, which I find terribly, terribly problematic. In addition to this eight-hour-a-day sort of thinking about medicine, I, I, like you, thought I was doing something so important. I don't think the current generation feels the way we did. They certainly didn't behave like that during COVID. No, you know, I tell the medical students all the time, you're spending four years of your career in medical school and then three years in what's known as a residency. And the reason it's called residency, as you remember, is because we were residents. We lived in the hospital environment for three years. And then they come out into any other specialty, let's say family medicine or pediatrics, and I'll, I'll talk to the medical students. I say, how could you be content to take care of your patients when they're well enough to drive to your office? And then when they're sick enough to have to be in the hospital for the first time in their life, they're sick unto death and you abandon them, even though you've learned your art and the science medicine in the hospital setting. So there has been, because of this hospitalist movement um, taking over for the hospital care, and by the way, those hospitalists and the, the, the obstetrical and the pediatric hospitalists they, are in, they, again, are under the thumb of the hospital. They have exclusive contracts with the hospital. So they follow, they, they toe the line with the hospitals. And instead of having the patient in the hospital have their advocate be the doctor who knows them best, and this, of course, was a nightmare during COVID, an utter nightmare for patients who had long relationships with their doctors, the doctors abandoned them in the hospitals and even abandoned them in the offices. So many of my colleagues shut down their offices during COVID and some to even to this day, if you're sick with cold symptoms, we're not going to see you because the fear factor, the doctors themselves, for the first time in my career of 33 years, I saw doctors afraid to take care of sick patients. And it was it was just uh, very upsetting. Yeah, it was weird. I mean, we cut our teeth on the HIV epidemic and we'd go in the room with all kinds of crazy infectious diseases. Uh, tuberculosis was a routine fare in my my life, and uh, I I don't. I, it was a very odd thing. It was a really yeah. And part of it is, as you're pointing out, that uh, we discovered, uh, lo and behold, that over sixty percent of physicians are employees, and the employer told them to stand down and don't treat patients. Tell them to go home until they come back short of breath, dying, which was one of the most extraordinary, bizarre chapters I've. I could ever imagine in the history of medicine. Yeah, you know, and you mentioned the 60% that are employed. Remember that most of the rest of the doctors have exclusive contracts with the hospital as well. Um, and mm -hmm. yes, I mean, my very first patient, and I shared this when I went to uh, Sarasota just a little over a week ago. I said, my very first patient was an HIV positive patient with Kaposi's and pneumocystis sarcoma, pneumocystis pneumonia, I should say, pneumocystis corona. And I, what I was trying to convey about that episode in the mid 80s. And then even when I took care of Haitian uh, refugees who had malaria and tuberculosis and TB, that these patients uh -oh. were treated. Hold on a second. What just happened here? There we go. So something happened to somebody's mic. Was that Susan? Was that you? Maybe. No, Who you're there. Help me here. You're there. Okay. You're there. Uh, Dr. Littell went, went away from me. So go ahead. You can finish. Go to Haitian refugees. Yeah. 
yeah, the Haitian refugees, I was able to take care of them during uh, uh, when I was in the military in Guantanamo Bay, and they came in with all sorts of infectious challenges. And we were with them. We never isolated them other than to keep them apart from each other in tents and obviously in isolation mm -hmm. rooms in the hospitals with HIV. But we mm -hmm. as physicians, as a medical community, embraced them. If not physically, at least we, we gave them compassion. Mm -hmm. We were with them. And we never thought twice about our own uh, necessarily our own well-being. We didn't. We weren't fearful because we knew that there were remedies. And even with COVID, hey, you know, newsflash: there were there were remedies for COVID. I never feared once about getting it. I got it twice in, in the last three years. Never wore a mask. Never got vaxxed, obviously. And um, and I treated myself with the early effective treatment protocols. And uh, I wish to God, it had we had the ability to give every man, woman, and child forget the children. They weren't even affected. But all these people in the hospitals the early effective treatment, it, it would have been uh, an amazingly different world. It would have been an amazingly different world if we could have done that. And, uh, you know, you mentioned HIV and, you know, that was a, a an epidemic with a 100% fatality rate at the time we were working in it. Not a 2%, not a 6%, 100%. It was a much, much more serious illness. But okay, so you you may be the perfect person for me to ask this question before I bring Dr. Victory in. I've been very confused why the extraordinary push to vaccinate kids. Uh, I I I was going over some of the data yesterday, and I I'm convinced personally. Now again, we all each one of us have our own opinion about the vaccines and you know what kinds of treatments we should be offering our patients. But I I've been persuaded that in the much older population, 65 plus, 70 plus, the vaccine has utility. Uh, certainly, you know, I got myself in a really tough situation with a tuberculosis patient a couple weeks ago, and having that patient had been vaccinated gave me a certain amount of security in making the, some of the clinical choices I had to make because I couldn't use certain things because he'd, he was on liver toxic medication. It was a very complicated situation. But I, it gave me some, I, I thought to myself, I'm so glad he had been vaccinated. It gives me something I can lean on. And when you look at the data on adults, there are about 1,200 deaths a week from COVID in this country. Pediatric patients, there are about 400 per year, per year. Why, if the, I, and, I, and I get ch children dying, I, that's why I don't do pediatrics. I can't even, I can't even deal with it. But but 400 per year of kids with underlying conditions of various types, let's be clear about that, versus 1,200 a week, how can you even show a benefit of vaccination, number one? And then number two, let's say you think you have shown it, why the push until you're really clear that the vaccine is safe? What, do you have a theory about what, let, let's, and let's say they're well-meaning and they're not distorted by big pharma. Let's just, what, what, what a well-thinking clinician, what person could that be think, could that person be thinking to persuade them that they must vaccinate in a situation there's, you know, a couple hundred deaths per year? Well, there's two things I have to respond to. Number one is this COVID death um, distortion that's out there. I have seen this firsthand. The hospitals have been testing every sick person for COVID and many well people for COVID that come in for elective procedures. So a COVID death to this day is anybody who dies with a positive test, irregardless of the symptomatology. And, and I made a video true. You know, about that. Case numbers were never an issue for me. A case of COVID, as I said in an early video, we didn't, you and I never used to talk about a case of measles as someone who was tested positive, but not sick. You had to be sick to have a right. case of measles. COVID, you don't have to be sick. Right. But number two, with the vaccines, wow, this is so troubling. 
in the world of pediatrics especially, vaccines have become primary prevention for every illness. That is what they consider primary prevention. When, when as you and I and, and, and our ancestors in medicine would have said, primary prevention is, is a healthy diet and exercise and all the things you talk about, I, I sure all the time, primary prevention but, but is But Dr. Lattel, if I, if, I could, if I could interrupt, if I could interrupt, we know this vaccine doesn't prevent infection. And we know most kids have been infected. What in the right. world, what am I missing? Am I missing that they could possibly be thinking? What are you missing? I don't know. They, we do know children have incredibly robust immune systems that they needed to be exposed to this, not masks and not quarantine. They damaged our children by isolating them. This is what we saw this past year with an incredibly, incredible bunch of sick kids this last year. I mean, I had never had more sick kids in my career than this last year because all these kids had been isolated the last two years from each other and not allowed to be exposed to the natural germs and develop a robust natural immunity, which now we all agree is superior. So no, who, what's driving the train for vaccines? That's where we, you and I get to be called conspiracy theorists. I, we, I think we all know what's driving the train and it's not medicine, it's not science. Well, Dr. Littell, we're gonna bring uh, my colleague, Dr. Kelly Victory in here, who uh, has lots of strong opinions as well. Um, we, as I've said a couple of times, we'll take a couple of calls from the Twitter spaces after we finish our interview with Dr. Littell. Uh, you can follow Dr. Littell at johnlittellmd.com. And I was going to talk to you a little bit about uh, women's health. I know that's been a very serious concern of yours for a long time, but I don't know. We may have to come back and talk about that. It's a whole big topic on it, of its own. There is his truth about uh, the hidden truth. I can't quite read it. Deception in women's health. Deception of his healthcare. All right, let's take a little break and we'll be back, Dr. Kelly Victory, after this. I think you know how much Susan and I love our Genucell skincare and how easy it is to try our one of a kind customer packages bundled with our favorite products. Susan realized the other day that one of our kids stole some of our deep correcting serum from our stash, if you will. We had no idea that the lactic and hyaluronic acid combo is so great for adult acne, dark marks, and scars so not only are susan and i hooked on these products but apparently somebody else in our family is too somebody's ripping it off i know i'm a snob about the products i use on my face everybody knows it every time i go to the dermatologist's office they're just rows and rows of different creams retinols vitamin c cream under eye cream night creams scrubs and then when i get to the counter they're overpriced all kinds of products that you can all find at genucel.com i've fallen in love with this product at a fraction of the price. I've been using Genucel for six months now, and I'm very impressed. Great skincare is important at any age, and we love how amazing the results are. Thank you to Genucel. Plus, now you can find your very own bundle based on your unique skincare needs using cutting-edge AI skincare technology. You can get a full skin analysis instantly and create a skincare regimen tailored towards your needs. Visit genucel.com slash Drew to check out our favorites and enter that promo code Drew, D-R-E-W, at checkout for added savings. All orders include free shipping and a free mineral mask. Order now. Go to genucel.com slash Drew. That is genucel, G-E-N-U-C-E-L, genucel.com slash Drew. Despite the U.S. blowing through the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling this January, the White House and the government still refuses to reduce spending. When it comes to fiscal responsibility, you can't afford to bury your head in the sand. Now would be a great time to consider gold with Birch Gold. In times of high uncertainty and instability, gold is king. 
Birch Gold makes it easy to convert an IRA or 401k into an IRA in precious metals. Here's what you need to do. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew to claim your free information kit, the info kit on gold, and then talk to one of their precious metals specialists. Think about this. To dig our country out of this mountain of debt, every single taxpayer in the country would have to write a check for $247,000 and... Of course, they're not, so it's only getting worse. Protect yourself with gold today by visiting birchgold.com slash Drew. That is B-I-R-C-H gold.com slash Drew. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, and countless five-star reviews, you can trust Birch Gold to protect your future. Here's what I want you to do. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew today. The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise, for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family dogs, cats, even horses in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7, a company founded by two guys who lost dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. Pet Club 24-7 has an incredible array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Corollius Versicolor and Inforce Corollius Versicolor with Reishi. My friend and colleague, Christina Ferrari, a cancer survivor herself, swears by it. When I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me, you have two years to live. Oh boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years now. For dogs, mush puppy treats are a fan favorite. Rex went, oh boy. Oh, he came right. Oh, there he is. They are also made with the Coriolis Versicolor Mushroom, which supports their immune system, according to hundreds of clinical studies. Here's Kristen Ludlow, National Vice President. That strain does matter. We do have the most potent strain, and we also extract it in a proprietary way. And that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products. Mush puppies are made here in the U.S. There are no fillers. It's not addicting. Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash petclub247 for a discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com. P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247, Pet Club 247. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. This episode ends here. The rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. Dr. Kelly Victory, I give you Dr. John Littell. Dr. Littell, so happy to have you here. Uh, although you and I have not been working uh, face to face during this uh, pandemic, we certainly are in this, have been in the same COVID work groups, uh, communicating on a on a weekly, if not daily, basis. And I, I feel very comfortable in saying that there is no daylight uh, between our positions and our opinions on pretty much everything related to this debacle. Uh, everything from uh, the falsification of the case numbers, as you said, uh, from the beginning, my tagline has been the virus is real, the statistics are not. Um, And then on to masking and lockdowns and school closures, and then fast forward uh, now to to vaccines. And I want to talk about all of those things, as well as uh, you and I share a commonality in having suffered the slings and arrows of derision, censorship, and you most recently just 
horrific um, treatment at the hands of, of your colleagues uh, at one of your hospitals in Florida. Um, but I want to start with the fact that you, more than any, certainly more than I, and more than most of the physicians who I've worked with during this pandemic, have treated thousands if I'm right, thousands of COVID patients, and you treated them successfully because you uh, adopted aggressively the early treatment protocols. Um, you know, we lived through an unprecedented time of what I call therapeutic nihilism, this idea that there was no treatment for COVID. And people were led to believe that they were uh, were destined to wait until they turned blue and then ended up in the hospital. So talk, if you would, for a little, take some time here and talk a little bit about your experience treating COVID patients, both inpatient and, or, and outpatient, you know, the, the early treatment protocols and sort of how you worked your way through uh, that morass and had the kind of successful outcomes that you had. Well, thanks again, Kelly. Yes, we both been through a lot. And um, I have to say it was a always a work in progress, always relied on conversations with all of our other colleagues that you've visited with, Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. McCullough, um, Richard Urso down in Texas. Uh, so many of us that, that really we were at one point, especially when Delta came out, we all were scrambling. And I'm sure you remember that time. With the alpha variant, the initial st stages, I was fortunate. I had already gotten my hands on an article on, on the role of quinine derivatives that was actually published in China early in like February of 2020. And my first patient was a nurse, a critical care nurse who took care of the first patient that died here in Ocala from COVID. She was with him for 12 hours straight on her shift. She developed the symptoms. She herself, interesting, this is why we listen to our patients, right? She already knew about hydroxychloroquine. And so I started her as she was part of a prayer group of people that got sick and I treated several. They'd all been together at a, at a prayer meeting and they all got sick. Um, and I, I began early on to use hydroxychloroquine. And of course, that was sufficient for the alpha, if, in my experience, sufficient for the alpha right. variant. But with Delta, it no longer was sufficient because people were coming in sicker, hypoxic, beginning the cytokine storm, beginning the microthrombosis. We pulled out every stop. And, um, and that's where at the same time, my oldest daughter got out of residency in family medicine and just, she dived right. She wanted to come work for me. I said, my Lord, did she work for me? She was the hardest working, newly minted family physician in the country because she was doing the telehealth stuff while I was seeing the patients. And getting back to that work ethic we discussed earlier, really being on call 24-7, calls literally two, three in the morning from every anywhere from New York to California and even abroad, people calling that could not get their hands on the medications uh, mm -hmm. or uh, mm -hmm. so it was a it was the hardest by far time work of, of my work life even including my military experience and uh, I just think I'm thanking God for the people that were brought into my life that that helped me to understand how to manage these patients because when I was going in the hospital the only other person in the country taking care of hospitalized patients at that time was Pierre Corey uh, there was nobody else you can imagine this entire this huge country of ours I right. couldn't find another voice of reason about how to manage hospital patients, except for one fellow who was, I think at that time in Wisconsin, if he hadn't already been kicked out of that hospital. And uh, we save lives as a team by the grace of God. 
No, and and by the way, I would tell our listeners, and I've mentioned this before, that the idea of having used uh, hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID wasn't something that you or anybody else pulled out of thin air. Uh, this dates back to there's a a great uh, research article that was published in 2005 under the auspices of Anthony Fauci stating that chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine were highly effective to treat SARS-CoV-1. We learned that during the SARS-CoV-1 outbreak in 2003. So this concept of, of using repurposed drugs as you and, and Pierre Corey and Richard Urso and, and uh, Peter McCullough and others began to adopt was something that this is the, the cornerstone of medicine to have done that. So you were on the, the, the bleeding edge or the leading edge of that fight. What was, what was your experience like as time went on in the hospital trying to treat COVID patients with the early treatment protocols? Wow. Uh, the, the hospitals obviously were and still are resistant to any of these uh, medications. And um, as I've shared, and I did share in Sarasota last week, um, the only person who was able to get the full dosing for ivermectin that was required during the, during the early days of COVID was the mayor of our town who actually called me. And the only reason I can share this, you would think this is HIPAA. It's not HIPAA because he shared it at the city council meeting. He actually thanked Dr. <laughs> Littell for his life. So I asked him, I have permission to share this. But he had the fire chief and the police chief and the EMTs at his home and he was hypoxic. At, and, and they said, you know, Mr. Mayor, you have to go to the hospital. They heard about me uh, and they called me and I said, okay, I'll put you in the hospital. I can't make any guarantees. Well, the hospital made an exception for him he got the full dose of ivermectin. He's in his 70s. He was out duck hunting a week later, okay? Meanwhile, I had wow. patients wow. that were coming to the hospital that they were denying ivermectin to at the same time that ended up two months in the hospital surviving by the skin of their teeth or patients for whom I had to sneak in or give their family members the ivermectin to bring in because that was the only thing that was working along with the high-dose corticosteroids and the blood thinners, which were being ignored by of all people, the intensive care doctors, they were not using adequate doses of right. steroids or anticoagulants. Right. Uh, it was mind boggling. When I went to have a conversation about it, they would just turn me, they would, who are you? They, they, I'm a family doctor, what do I know? And and God forbid a patient asked, you know, did I ever hear, did you hear the story real quick? The hospital is rounding on the patient in the COVID unit, the, the COVID, the patient who's been there for weeks and is dying. And he says to the doctor, would you please, would you please, give me some of this ivermectin. And I heard the young hospitalist say, I've been doing this for months. I'm using these protocols. People are either living or dying. I don't want to hear any of your conspiracy nonsense that you're reading. And I caught that young doctor in the hallway. And I said, do you realize to this young doctor who I previously respected, I said, that patient on his phone in his bed for two weeks knows more about how to treat COVID than you do in your little finger because you're just nothing but a robot following these protocols and you're not allowing yourself to be exposed to new ideas. And that's what I saw day in and day out in the hospital setting. No, it, it really is tragic. And that's that's fodder for an entire show of its own. My dissolution with uh, with our own profession, it, it really has been uh, disheartening to see what's happened to our to our colleagues. Um, and and I'd, let's let's actually talk about that. You know, as I said, you, you have more experience than pretty much anybody else out there. The people like George Freed and Brian Tyson and others who have, you know, thousands and thousands of patients to their credit as well. So so the stories are 
are growing. But you recently, I think it was just last week, you were at a board meeting in, uh, in your hospital in Sarasota and had the audacity to stand up and speak about your experience. Um, talk about what happened there. I think we have the video clip, but I'd like to hear first, um, at least, you know, tee it up for us what that experience was. Well, the experience was humbling and um, unexpected. I went down there with an olive branch, basically hoping that I could uh, have a dialogue. And I actually congratulated this hospital on what was apparently a good track record with regards to other diseases. They're a very highly rated hospital. I'm not on staff at Sarasota Memorial. I went there feeling obligated to go there to be a voice for the people that I had cared for and uh, what I'd seen. And so I tried to describe, and they only gave me, I asked for more time. They gave me three minutes. It was less than that because I had complimented them first. I shouldn't even have bothered that. And um, I insisted on speaking further. I, I actually did take my seat after that. Um, I had driven two and a half hours. I had to leave to come back to Ocala because, I, I mean, I had patients to take care of and a lot of stuff to do. So I walked over to the uh, one board member who was a, a sympathetic person. She had said wonderful things about us, and I, and I bent over. And I just said before I left, thank you for your support. I wish I could speak more. And it was at that point I had a tap on my shoulder from one security officer and I was asked to, to leave. I had to get back to my where my bag was and my wife was sitting in the audience. Another big security officer came down and said, you need to walk. And then they put me out the door and then an even bigger security officer said, start walking. And that's that whole thing was was to say the least unexpected because uh, I said, I'm a doc what's going on here? I had no idea what I was being led to. So I was led, essentially marched alone. There was no one there except the security officer and myself. They secured the camera guy, a reporter who was wonderful. I, in retrospect, I didn't know him. Tried to come out. They wouldn't let him, I think. And then um, he caught up with me as I got to the door where they said to me, you know, get your keys and get in the car. And I said, well, my wife's in there. I can't get my car. And they said, well, then you need to get out off the hospital premises. And that's when we went to the sidewalk. But but it was um, uh, unexpected. And unfortunately, a lot of the high, it made the hospital look horrendous. I mean, I'm not sure if they had instructed the security guys to do this with anyone in particular or just me. But um, I wish to, to, in retrospect, they had just said, Dr. Littell, let's have a conversation. Yeah. So, here so here you are being here you are being forcefully or being led out by law enforcement from from a hospital board meeting where you you used your allotted time to speak. You couldn't look any more professional. Um, I, th I mean, this is uh, this didn't happen even early in the pandemic. This is last week. This is tyrannical. What kind of what what sort of board meeting was this? What was the nature of the this meeting? Yes, this was a board meeting that had been uh, put together for the purpose of discussing what took place with hospitalized patients during the COVID, it, well, it, and still does take place with COVID positive patients. And, and rather than dealing with that issue, the chief of staff stacked the entire two thirds of that auditorium with supporters of the hospital who talked about how wonderful it was having a baby there or when their grandma was there 20 years ago. They did not leave, they left less than a third of the time to actually discuss the problems with the care of the COVID patients. So they were speeding us up through. And and unfortunately, even though they knew I'd driven there, if the chairman of the board had just said, Dr. Littell, thank you for coming. I mean, just one little word of thanks for cleaning out my entire state of patients, which means, of course, I work until eight o'clock the next day seeing patients. You guys know the story, you know, yeah. and, and and my own. So I, I was kind of flabbergasted why when I tr came 
complimenting them on actually having this meeting. By the way, this is the only hospital in the country that's had a meeting of this sort. And it's because it's a community hospital where they're allowed to vote in board members. And, they, and in the last year, they got three people on the board that were sympathetic to our cause. And that was enough to, for them to have an open meeting. Every other hospital in the country would never even dream of having a community meeting, uh, but they should. They should. People deserve to hear what happened to their loved ones. So you were guilty. You were guilty of daring to question uh, what happened. You are guilty of daring to ask why patients weren't allowed to access certain medications. You dared to ask why patients weren't given informed consent. You dared to ask why patients were not allowed to be a participant in the direction of their own care. You had the audacity to question that. And that is what got you walked out. I mean, these, this is something that honestly, I, has the hospital responded as all? What, what is the repercussion of this? I, immediately after this happened, I actually called the one board member. She texted me and she was she was aghast. She was apologetic that it happened. And I said, no, I really, perhaps, and my wife, who is very much a follow the rules kind of person, her dad was a high school principal. She said, John, you know, you really shouldn't have gone down to that board person because that is, there is a, I said, I've never been in a board meeting like this. I did not know I violated protocol. So I basically gave the hospital, I said to the board member, if the hospital wants me to set the record straight, I had no idea this would go viral. But I did say, uh, I would like to talk and I'd like to apologize for if I did something wrong, but I believe they overreacted. I should not have been treated like a thug walking through those hallways. I mean, the police themselves could have said, I'm sorry, we have to do this. Instead, it was very intimidating. And I'm over the PTSD part of it, but it was a little upsetting for a few days, honestly, for me to well, have to with all due respect, you, you do look rather menacing, I have to say, in that white coat. <laughs> you look so menacing, Dr. Littell. I know I'd run to the other side of the street. Um, let's switch gears for a, a minute here now, and, and let's um, talk about one of my favorite current topics and one on which... Drew and I have disagreed quite a bit over the over the months, and that's vaccines. Um, you know, I am one who I, I was very, very vocal about problems with the vaccines before they were ever rolled out. I had grave concerns about them. Um, and I, as I maintain, uh, you know, all of medicine boils down to a risk benefit analysis. And if you are not allowed to uh, understand your true risk from this virus or your complete lack of risk, as the case may be, um, then you know you you aren't able to give informed consent and make good decisions. What's been your experience in terms of you you have a huge patient base, you you cover many, many different hospitals. What's your experience been with regard to the vaccines in general, including adverse events that you may or may not have seen, uh, vaccine hesitancy? where where is that? How's that been for you? Well, you know, the easy easy answer is that yes, I've seen cardiac arrhythmias, I've seen reonsets of cancers that were in remission in patients who've received particularly Moderna with the cancers and Pfizer with the cardiac arrhythmias. Um, that said, in the early days of the Delta variant, when this was being rolled out, one of the observations we had, and this is where I think Drew uh, has some, um, he's got sense about him on this, that even Dr. McCullough and I were having conversations, the people the older, the geriatric population that had been vaxxed had a little initial wave of protection, assuming they survived the vaccine, right? Which most did, but they, they, um, there was a little bit of an edge of protection because their immune system was on alert. What did, what, what really is the crime about the vaccines is they never really should have been rolled out in the first place. First place, the reason these elderly people were so 
hit hard and others at risk by COVID is because they've been isolating themselves, wearing masks, not being exposed to small doses so that their immune systems could have built up a natural immunity. We all in this show agree with that. There shouldn't have been all this unnecessary masking and quarantining and distancing and even the hand unnecessary hand washing and stuff. You needed to be exposed to, to micro doses to build up a natural immunity. But that said, if you were an elderly person in a nursing home that had crappy diet and and no sunshine and no vitamin D and and someone next to you got COVID at the in the initial stages of the Delta, the people who were vaxxed were probably protected for a little while. Now then we saw that that was very short lived protection. Nowhere near what we saw with the naturally immune patients I have. So to let you know, I'm here right near the villages. I have a hundreds of patients, if now thousands from the villages in Florida and they have robust natural immunity. These folks who did not get vaccinated, they went, they skated right through Omicron uh, and the recent variants. So um, I, I, there was a small interval during which the vaccine had some efficacy, but in the net, on the net harm, net harm to people, I would have to say without a shadow of a doubt. Okay, and then now also you you have some expertise in women's health, uh, clearly, and I know that you know we are seeing concerning uh, problems in women's health, everything from menstrual problems to issues with fertility, uh, and now uh, worrisome increases in miscarriages and stillbirths. I just read the study out of Singapore, Singapore being one of the most heavily vaccinated uh, countries in in the world, and they had nearly a twofold increase. In um, in stillbirths in this past year, what from a women's health perspective have you seen any impact on your patient population? Well, I've been dealing with infertility for years. It's a big thrust in my book, and the people who've had recurring miscarriages is one of my expertise. I, I uh, give more progesterone, I think, than any doctor around because what progesterone does in the early stages of, of uh, pregnancy is it improves blood flow into the developing through the developing placenta to the baby. So what you see with spike protein is you get microthrombosis, you all, you know, the small blood clots. So that can and certainly does trigger miscarriages and later on, presumably the stillborn. It's a lack of adequate blood supply to the developing baby. So have I seen it personally? I don't do the advanced obstetrical care that I used to, but our local obstetrician in town who's been here for 40 years even took me aside a year ago, said, John, I have not seen so many miscarriages in my 40 year career as I have in the last year. Um, and we had two stillborn babies in one week shortly after the rollout of the vaccines. And we had gone years with none. So it's not a huge hospital and it's anecdotal. But if you look across the globe, and as you just mentioned in Singapore, it is no surprise to me that this bombardment of the spike protein getting into the women's developing circulation, the maternal fetal circulation, the, the exchange between the mother and the baby is impaired by the spike proteins, which causes coagulation, the, the microthrombosis. And so one thing I have said to every woman who's trying to have a baby out there in the early stages, get a progesterone level and find a doctor that understands progesterone support in pregnancy. Uh, something I discussed in, in an article I've written, actually, it's on my website in Natural Womanhood, I believe it appeared, and also in the book. 
Well, we've had Dr. Ryan Cole, uh, as who I know you know, uh, as a guest of ours a couple of times, and he has actually shared with us, he has looked at placentas, unfortunately, from some of these um, miscarriages and said that they are uh, across the board small, way small for gestational age. And he is seeing these calcifications and the thromboses, as you said, within the placentas, which really, I think, speaks to to spike protein damage and probably is part of the causative issue with, with regard to these fertility, these fertility problems. Um, for you, I'm sorry, Drew, were you coming in with something? Oh, I agree. I agree. I, we used I, to, in medical training, we would show a, a placenta and, and, you know, a healthy placenta, the medical students would see the healthy placenta. You remember this? And then they'd show the placenta of the IUGR baby, which was all shriveled up right. and gray. Right. And then just between smokers. So you're basically right. You're getting out of that baby's circulation. It's horrendous. And so just to translate what we're talking about is the IUGR is intrauterine growth retardation. So babies that don't fail to develop because of placental right. failure. And and I and I'm on the record having apologized to Naomi Wolf about the at least five mechanisms that might be entering into the menstrual right. irregularities, um, as as enlightened to us by Ryan, uh, Dr. Cole, which is they're seeing spike proteins in the myelin cells, they're seeing spike proteins in the neuronal lipid bilayer bilayer uh, membranes, they're seeing uh, spikes in the adrenals, in the ovaries, and uh, in potentially with uh, changes in the, what was it, plasminogen activator inhibitor that may be causing bleeding at the level of the uterus as well. So there's multiple mechanisms now that have been identified uh, that are interfering with possibly fertility and normal menstrual functioning. I want, I want to circle back to what you said about the vaccine in the early days. I, mean, I had a, you know, I'm in good shape. I'm 60, I was 62 years old. I had bad COVID, bad. It's, it is a messed up illness when you get it. And uh, monoclonal antibody saved me, kept me out of the hospital. And I, I took, I, I don't think, I'm, I'm not sure I've said this publicly. I took hydroxychloroquine, I took ivermectin. I got sicker and really sick and uh, got on a monoclonal antibody and turned around literally within an hour after the, that infusion. I mean, literally the, uh, the room colors got brighter during the infusion and the nurse that was doing that infusion told me that he saw that on a regular basis, that people had rapid turnarounds. Now, of course, we don't have those monoclonal antibodies anymore, so those aren't even a treatment option really any longer. But I'm just, the point is, it's a nasty illness in the alpha and delta phase. And I feel like that the by by having what might've been a relatively short-lived serious effect on infectivity, right? Let's say four months interruption of uh, viral infection with Delta or Alpha, we might've done something. We, we rushed this thing to market. There's no doubt about that. We took risks we would never take in other circumstances, but we did interrupt things a little bit. We, it, was, it wasn't a net null effect. I don't know if we'll ever be able to measure the actual effect, but I, I still feel as though we did something. The problem as so, so, so much in this, on pandemic have been the excesses. Now we start mandating it. Now we start giving it to infants. And now the mandating, the the overreach, the 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 continued uh, going down the slippery slope. I I think that's I, we could all agree that's where we get into trouble. Would you agree with that, Dr. Latell? Well, the mandates in general have been a disaster, and that's why I'm happy to live in Florida, where the governor actually called me at the beginning stages and said, what do you think about masks uh, and children, especially? And um, no, we, we have 
this this idea of uh, social social engineering. You know, I'm, I'm really thankful that my major at Cornell, which was biology and society, prepared me for understanding how easily science can be co-opted for evil. And that has what exactly what has happened here. People have become robotic in their behavior, and that includes our fellow doctors. And can I also say one other thing about monoclonals real quick? You realize in the early days of the monoclonals, the hospitals had complete control over those infusions. I was begging hospitals on a Friday afternoon to get them for patients who had failed the other remedies or where it was too late to get them. And the hospitals, oh, I'm sorry, we're not open again until whatever time, Monday or Saturday afternoon. And you had a whole slew of paperwork to complete as a doctor to get rejected. And then what happens? The governor steps up, Governor DeSantis, and says, the heck with this. We're taking it out of the hospitals. I'm going to open infusion centers in the villages and in front of the Walmart here. And people could just show up and get their infusions. Right. And so Governor DeSantis yep. saved lives by doing that yep. and taking yep. it out of the hands. And secondly, if you were an inpatient in the hospital, if you got, if you dared to go into that ER, if you were unfortunate enough to go into the ER, guess what? No monoclonal antibody infusions for inpatients. It was denied. You were denied a, a treatment that we knew was saving lives there. And even the hospitals knew it, knew it. That wasn't even questioned. So how did they get away with that? I don't know. I get yes. upset. No, it, there there was a lot of, there, there was more rationing of care than I think people understand. Uh, Dr. Cariotti tells us that in the day, early days of uh, the shortages of ventilators, they were trying to determine who would get on a ventilator. And by the way, medical need was not the concern. You know, the people that needed the ventilators most for medical reasons were not considered as a top reason for getting the ventilator. Now, Dr. Cariotti, as the head of their, at the time, bioethics department, was able to persuade, finally, that the way to practice medicine is to treat the sickest people and give the treatment to the people that need the treatment, period. Uh, but think about the fact that we were rationing care in very bizarre, haphazard ways throughout the pandemic. Worse, worse than the ventilator issue, home oxygen, home oxygen. You have no idea how many hours I spent trying to get oxygen for patients. At one point in time, I had a very well-known lawyer in Orlando who was hypoxic, could not get oxygen. Opria, one of the largest oxygen man supply companies in the country, literally told me on the phone, we're swamped with calls. We no longer are going to the homes of COVID patients. We had to make a decision. They decided to withhold oxygen from the COVID patients. So this particular fellow went out and bought himself a $600 oxygen generator. And he wasn't the only one in this country who did that to keep himself right. out of the hospital, which he did. So we, you know, so many levels, the pharmacies that refused to dispense the medications, the oxygen companies, the right. hospitals, the doctors, everybody failed patients during COVID. And, it, and so yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and no, and, yeah. and I, I understand your outrage because that's how I feel as well. And I think it's the appropriate emotion. Um, this wasn't, I, I don't even think that rationing, Drew, is the right word because rationing mm. implies that you have a limited amount of something and you're trying to sort of, you know, dispense it uh, equitably or something. This was directing care. Hospitals had a perverse financial incentive to admit people and call mm. them COVID patients. They had a perverse incentive to let them die with COVID because they collected huge sums of money. Uh, so in the range of $40,000 more per patient that died with COVID uh, that they got through the CARES 
Act, and on and on. I think you cannot discount the financial incentives that were there. They put an absolute um, you know, kibosh on the use of, of repurposed drugs like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin because uh, they had to disprove those or they wouldn't have gotten the emergency use authorization. And the thing that I wanted to ask you about next, Dr. Littell, the thing that one, one of the many things that makes me angry is that if some if someone for myself who spent their life in, in medicine and healthcare and you as a family medicine expert, why during all of this was no one allowed to talk about none of the powers that be talking about the simple, safe, effective things that you could be doing in addition, like supplementing zinc and vitamin D and the idea of taking quercetin. Uh, why did we lose this huge public Kelly, health opportunity Ke to, to yeah, educate people yeah. about obesity? The single yeah, greatest obesity, risk out, outdoor activities. Nasal lavage, simple nasal yeah. lavage four times a day showed great efficacy, whether you use betadine or not. There were all kinds of things we could have been talking about had we been allowed to talk about anything. Had we as a medical executive, even the, the staff leaders in our hospital spent hours and hours talking about strategies for isolating patients in the hospital instead of if, if we could have been talking about ionophores, you know, what it go back to biochemistry 101, you know, and learn about why zinc is, is so amazing. And, and, and the studies that have been out there by Nobel Prize winning scientists on vitamin D and vitamin C, you said, no, we didn't have these conversations as doctors. You weren't allowed to have them. And when I went even in the hospital environment to try to order high levels of vitamins, they didn't have them in the hospital formulary. So, so people were flocking flocking everywhere. You know, I have to, to real quick, get back to the financial, perverse financial motives. That that nurse that I took care of with the hydroxychloroquine um, in the very my very first patient, all right, she wanted to get tested. She worked in the hospital that had the first mortality. They wouldn't, they had, a, they had a limited supply of test kits. They wouldn't let her test herself. At the same time, I had a patient who was actively dying after a cabbage, a coronary artery bypass procedure that had gone bad. He was dying in the ICU. The day before he died, they shoved the swab in his nose and they tested him for COVID with one of those rare test kits. And I and I was yeah. so upset that they didn't get their own employee. I went to the doctor's lounge the next day and I see, of all things, the chief medical officer, the chief executive officer, and a new guy named the chief financial officer who just arrived on the scene. I asked the CMO and CEO who I knew, I said, what's going on here that I couldn't get a test for my patient who's an employee here? but you're swabbing the nose of a guy who doesn't have COVID symptoms and he's actively dying. I said, it seems to me like there must be some sort of an incentive. And I've heard on the street that there's a financial incentive that maybe you guys get paid a little extra for COVID diagnoses in your patients, the employee not, right? And the CMO turns to me and the CEO said, no, we haven't heard about that. And then the CFO who's uh -huh. new really went behind years. He says, oh yeah, no, we are. We're getting paid for that. <laughs> and he's no longer <laughs> It's kind yeah, of like, he wow. said the quiet. Yeah, yeah. Let, yeah. I mean, th right. And this is the, this is the kind of corruption that people need to understand. Um, it, it's wrong. It's wrong. And, and by the way, these were you know U.S. taxpayer dollars that were were funneled to them. So now we've had some uh, some states, my home state of Colorado, um, retrenched and redid their COVID numbers and decreased their COVID numbers and their COVID deaths. Uh, by something like 40%, but those hospitals don't give that money back. <laughs> those hospitals don't return the money um, to the coffers of the U.S. 
uh, taxpayer. Um, so th this really, this entire thing, truly, um, it was so much of it was was driven by corruption and immorality. Uh, and and let's let's talk about that for a minute. I, I've, the clock's winding down, but you are a person of of great faith, uh, as am I. And I'll tell you, if it weren't for that, there are periods of this this pandemic that I I would not have gotten through. Uh, I counted myself not only on my faith, but on people like you and and McCullough and Reish and Corey, uh, people who there was great um, uh, camaraderie and and fellowship in that. Talk a little bit about your experience as a doctor and as a as a person of faith. Um, how this has impacted you. Wow, that needs a whole segment. I, I definitely have, uh, when I was a kid, I was going to either be a doctor or a priest and, and I actually spent a year in a Catholic seminary. And um, I, 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 let me give you one faith story, okay? I, I had a patient, when that nurse got sick, one of the other guys in the, in the group was very sick. He's not my patient, ended up on a ventilator in the hospital. We had a priest right next door to my office here from Poland and I saw him one day just walking. We weren't having mass that day. We weren't having anything. The churches were shut down. And he said right. to me, Dr. Littell, it feels like I'm back in Poland. I can't even be a priest. I feel like I'm back in under communism. I said, Father Z, would you like to go see Tim, who's in the hospital? I snuck him in. He put on the, all, all his personal protective equipment, PPE. He walked in. He anointed Tim. Tim was the first person to get off a ventilator. And, he, and to this day, he's going to daily mass. I know the power of healing through faith and through interpersonal relationships and giving people hope. And when the hospitals denied that to our patients, they were criminal. They were, they were, they were so uncaring. And they weren't, and by the way, please, so many wonderful nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists out there. I'm not talking about them personally. I'm talking about the, the structure of the hospitals allowing right. this to take place. I don't know who to blame anymore, but somebody should be taken a task for what they did to these patients. You know, er Earlier, we were talking about how we weren't allowed to talk about anything until very, very recently. What happened and very recently includes that board meeting you were at last week. What, what was the conversation there? Were, were you received in any way respectfully? Did you, were you having an argument when you gave up and present you? Or did you have a chance even to really present your, your data? No, no, I had to zip through. I mean, I, by the time I finished telling the hospital in my three minutes that I thought that they were doing a great job with their HCAP scores and their cert satisfaction and that they could be the best if they would just. And then he said, you got one minute left. I didn't know how that happened. And I was going to share these cases. So at the very end, I just said, if you want to be the best, you need to be the first to admit that you did wrong and that you need to have this conversation. And I sat down. It was not I mean, I got a huge ovation from the group. We, we had to turn away. They turned away people that were supporting our side. Their side was packed, the auditorium. They were told to come an hour before the meeting and pack the auditorium. So there, we were, there were 400 seats. We were lucky if we got 60 seats in the auditorium. And that would mean our side. So it was really hard that we got, I got a reaction. But again, it was when I got up and left. And I just turned to everyone. I said, I have this white coat on. And I, that's what you hear me saying. I'm not hospital employed. I'm not a contra an exclusively contract with the hospital. I'm here to be a voice for the voiceless. And that's when I left the place. That's it. No, and, and it, you know, you and I, whether you are a person who relies uh, on, on uh, a structured faith or the Bible, or you're somebody who simply understands the, the, the human circumstance, we have, you've got to know as a physician that hope 
that hope, whether it's based in faith or simply that hopefulness, a positive attitude, greatly impacts outcomes. You, you can't deny it. If you've ever treated a patient, you know that when patients give up, when they lose their will to live, when they lose their hope, when they think there is no outcome, when they are isolated, uh, at, that that does not pretend well for good outcomes. I can tell you as myself, as a physician, I was admitted, I was in the hospital uh, for, for longer than I'd like to think during the COVID pandemic, having nothing to do with COVID. I had an orthopedic issue and required multiple surgeries. And, and, and I spent that time alone day in and day out in a room where only a nurse would peek in, you know, to give you or change an IV bag with a mask on. No family was allowed in. No, you saw no one. It was the most it was horrible. And I'm a physician who understands the this, this system. I wasn't dying. I just had an inconvenient orthopedic problem. And I know how hopeless it made me feel. It was depressing. I cannot imagine being an elderly person or a child or somebody with a life-threatening illness and being left in that situation. I think we killed people by that alone. The hardest job I had during COVID was people calling me saying, you're not my doctor. Would you please just go see my husband, my wife, my dad, my mom, my child, 18-year-old, 13-year-old that were in there and COVID units and could not see anybody. And all I did is go in and hopefully give them hope. I said, I'm here for you. I'm going to review your chart. In some cases, it was too late, but, but, but they were reassured by the fact that someone went and visited them. Uh, that at least had some insight into the spiritual dimension of healthcare and the need for relationships to to be present in healing. I, I want to shine a bit of a light on what you both are saying, which is that you you are not saying strictly speaking faith based therapeutics uh, are a, a, what you're advocating. You're saying that there's something about humanity and caretaking yeah. and generating hope and touch and all the things that we know how to do as caretakers that has been largely, I didn't expect us to get into this conversation, but I've been feeling really across my entire career that that has been largely expunged from medicine. It is certainly from physicians. It's been handed over to nursing and chiropractors and other people who use it as their primary technique. And we are left not having the opportunity to use this thing that is perhaps more important than anything else on a, and again, on a spiritual plane, on a, on a meaning making plane, that the ability to bear witness to another human's suffering and to connect and attune and be present and pull them through. There's, you know, we use the language right. of pull them through. That's literally what sometimes happens with yeah. that human connectedness. And you may also wish to interpret it in other, as you said, Kelly, in other more classical sort of formally religious uh, sort of right. structures. But all of this has been, look, what is the most rigorous punishment you can give a human being? Isolation. You go into the hole when you when you're going to get the worst punishment, and it makes people crazy, and it makes them sick. And if they were sick to begin with, they get really sick. And uh, no thought was given to any of that. Nor, and on a larger scale, that's just the hospital version of it. We did it on a national scale with the lockdowns. We literally did it to ourselves on that level of scale on the advice of the Chinese Communist Party. The insanity of this goes; it just rolls on and on and on. Dr. Littell, we are sort of running out of time here. We really appreciate you coming and sharing with us. Uh, Kelly, maybe you have some closing words as well. 
No, just I would like to ask you, Dr. Latell, your closing words. You know, you, you are a man of, of of great, as I said, of faith, tremendous experience in medicine. Uh, your your thoughtfulness during this pandemic uh, has been greatly appreciated. You've always been measured. How do you see us moving forward as as a profession, as a country, uh, moving forward from this? Well, people will begin to trust their physicians and their hospitals again when we restore humanity to the profession of medicine. And um, like I would do in each room, the first thing I did is I'd take the mask down and let them see my face and I'd grab their hand and just hold their hand. And um, there's something very special about being a doctor. And I just hope that every doctor out there, every nurse, every hospital administrator starts to get in touch with why they got into this profession, this noble profession, as it once was called, to begin with. And I thank you guys for being my colleagues in this fight. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. Thank you, sir. We really appreciate we it. Appreciate we'll talk it. soon. You got it. God bless you. Thank you. Good afternoon. That is Dr. John Littell, johnlittellmd.com. And Kelly, I uh, wrapped it up uh, because we promised we would take a couple of calls. There have been Aww. several people sitting on hold for quite some time, so I want to get to them. Susan, you yes. seem to want to talk. No, I'm just, that was touching. I'm, I'm, I'm well, not surprised as I said, that's I, you who know, he is. And they, He's you know, unbelievable. And, 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 and I, as yeah. again, I, as you said, Drew, I'm not trying to suggest, and I certainly don't think Dr. Latell is that, that, you know, no. that faith heals all things. That, that we, we are, we are hardcore Western physicians. But without no. that component, you can throw all the, the, the antibiotics and antivirals and fluids and steroids. You wanted something. If people lose hope, if you force people to mm -hmm. a point of desperation, um, they will not do well. Uh, and there's a reason why, you know, we have used, used things like guided imagery when we are treating people for cancers and those sorts of yeah. things, because yeah. that sense of hopefulness is very important. And humanity has been lost yeah. in medicine. It, 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 at very minimum, it ameliorates suffering, which is valuable. Yes. Yes. Adding to suffering, immeasurably adding predictably to suffering is unconscionable. And right. no thought was given to any of that. All right, let me get some speakers up here. We're at the, at the Twitter spaces. We're going to take a couple calls. Um, this is uh, Deborah to begin with. Uh, hi, hey, I Deb. guess. Hi, Dr. Drew. I just want to say thank you for having me. And Kelly Victory, I actually followed her in the very beginning of this pandemic. And then I believe she was silenced and I was as well. Mm. Um, I have some iron irony. Um, <laughs> my sisters. husband. Yes, I remember. And I and you were being silenced. And I thought, well, she has then she's telling the truth. So my, <laughs> last October, my husband well, he woke up one day and he said, my leg is, he was in so much pain. I've never seen him in this much pain before. Uh -oh. uh, anyways, long story short, um, he goes to the hospital and they say he has a blood clot and he needs to go have it removed surgically. And okay, I say goodbye to him. Love you. I'll be waiting. Next thing I know, I'm allowed to see him in ICU. He's ventilated, intubated, mm. and he had emergency thrombectomy, and they believe a heart attack is what caused it a few days before, but we just didn't know. Mm. Um, so he's in ICU for four weeks, and I thought maybe he was fighting COVID at that time as well because a lot of mucus was coming out, coughing, fighting the ventilator. Oh, no, we don't even test for that. I thought that was odd. So uh, 
I rubbed him down with ivermectin paste while he was in there. Um, I don't know if it, I don't know if it made a difference or not. Um, then we have another four weeks at a different hospital in recovery. And uh, he's still in. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. Back up. I uh, told him this intubation is very uncomfortable for him. Um, I want a tracheotomy. So we had, we had that placed along with the feeding tube and dialysis. He was in kidney failure and heart failure. So we do another four weeks in a different hospital for recovery. While we're there, I'm noticing people on the floor obviously have COVID because staff is covering up in PPE to enter their rooms. So I'm thinking it's just a matter of time before my husband is going to be tested positive for this. Mm-hmm. Plus he's coughing mucus through his trachea and I'm, you know, I could, I, I feel it. It's, we're back here again with this COVID or whatever. And, uh, so I watch these nurses very carefully. They come in the room, they crush the pills, they put it in a large syringe with water and they inject it into his feeding tube. Mm-hmm. So I refused remdesivir after I found out that was one of their, their main treatments, which floored me. And I injected it into him for five, twice a day for five days. Nobody knew this. And you injected what? Wait, Deborah, you injected what? I injected him with high hydroxychloroquine, um, so, ivermectin, um, vitamin D, quercetin, vitamin C. Please, no, don't do this. Don't, oh. don't do that. That, that he was a kid. <laughs> well, he was a, a, a intubated patient in renal failure that could have killed him very easily. I'm glad he I got know. better. I'm well, glad he yeah, got better. I know. And I understand, but I was desperate and they wanted to give him remdesivir. And I, I said, no. And he actually recovered and we got him out. We did go, um, against their advice early on. He mm. wanted out. I, he, he was losing his mind. Um, yeah, it was a, it so, was so what, a let's problem. Just, so, so what happened was he had a heart attack. It causes yes. a, a, a part of the a muscle. A blood clot. Part of the muscle gets dies, and that the sometimes that causes a clot formation inside the ventricles against the yes. wall of the heart. Then that clot gets thrown. Thank God it did not go to his head; it went to his leg. That's an embolic yes. event that would have killed his leg. His leg was dying. That's why he was in all that pain. And they yes. went and pulled out the clot. But he, this is a very complicated and dangerous situation. I'm imagining. Yeah. I'm imagining he may have also showered some other parts of his body with clot, including his kidneys. So he may, yes. have, may have had what's called atherombolic renal failure. So a really complicated situation. Um, yes. COVID on top of that is no bueno, that's for sure. Uh, yes. That is for sure. I'm glad he's well, but that is a hair-raising story and not one that yeah. we can really say much except thank Why? God he's well. I'm, I'm, yeah. sort of, I'm sort of glad they didn't test him for COVID because that allowed you to stay in the room with him. Otherwise, they would have isolated him and there would have been nobody there advocating for him. You know, they let the family members in, even though the other family members had COVID on the rooms. And when we left, they were still on ventilators and they were treating with remdesivir. And I saw about four bodies leave. Yeah. 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 So it was a desperate I'm thrilled that he didn't didn't get remdesivir, uh, that that drug. If he didn't have kidney failure before, it it causes it. uh, And it's a drug that uh, I've saw no good outcomes with remdesivir. So I'm happy for you and for him that uh, he managed to avoid that. 
Thank you, Deborah. Let's get uh, Meredith. Wow. Uh, that's, a, that's a wild story. I wonder if I would do that for you, yeah, Drew. But, but you got to understand something. <laughs> that kind of a... That Kelly kind of wouldn't a, let me. <laughs> in my world, that kind of a case is rather routine. So the reason that he was having all those fluids from his lungs is because when you intubate patients like that, they get pneumonias. When they, The longer they stay in the ICU, the worse the pneumonias get. Tracheostomy was probably reasonable for a guy that wasn't weaning from the ventilator. I mean, these are very complicated. Crazy. Multi-system situations the only thing that really prevented catastrophe is it doesn't sound like he ever actually became septic which was right around the corner <laughs> and thankfully he did not uh meredith you can unmute yourself well, there and also if you. i can if i can point yeah. out that's just yeah. that's terror a yeah. terrifying combination of desperation and then a complete lack of trust in all of the medical professionals that were around yeah. that should yeah. just go inject yeah. these things out of desperation and uh, that's terrifying yeah. to get to that space there that mm. she's not even right. trusting anyone around. Yep. Wow. No, yeah. no. And that's, that's really a, a you know, a, a uh, insightful comment, Caleb, because I think that that's really where we are. People don't trust their doctors anymore. And so when you talk mm. about, you know, people developing vaccine hesitancy across the board because of this or developing just right. hesitancy and fearfulness and distrust of the entire yeah. system. And I've, right. I've warned about that's this true. from the beginning that God help us when we raise the alarm flag the next time, because there will be a next time, a next a big public health event, and we have lost the trust of the public, and that's a very dangerous yeah. position to be in. It's true. Yep, very true. Uh, Meredith, you could unmute your mic there in the lower left-hand corner, and let's uh, see what's up. Actually, I think I accidentally raised my hand. Okay, Sorry. all right. Thank <laughs> you. Great space, loving thank it as always. All right, thank Meredith, you. thank you for popping up. We appreciate it. We like saying hi to people. It's all good. Uh, this is Winston, I think. Uh, Winston. Winston. Okay. We like Winston. I know Winston knows how to do this. Hey, what's happening, guys? Uh, very. We're hi. having a good time. What's up with you? No, you know, same soup, just reheated. <laughs> <laughs> Did have a... Uh, Kind of a question that's been kicking around in my head, and I wanted to uh, to get your guys' thoughts on it. You know, so we now know that, okay, they actually did wildly um, overcount the deaths of, of COVID versus with COVID type of thing. And mm -hmm. as I, I sit here, you know, we're three years in, and I'm like, I still know so many people that are completely radicalized by this mm -hmm. and, and won't ever change their mind on it. And I'm thinking, how many of those people might have had a family member or you know, friend, acquaintance, anything that was falsely had their death attributed to COVID. And is there anything that can be done for bringing those people back? And in cases where they have over or they died with COVID versus of COVID, do you guys know, is there any, are they reaching out to families? I can't imagine they are, but no, are they like, hey. No. And if you remember, I, I, was oh. a little, I was defended the hospitals for doing that because that was a convention that was put in place so the hospitals could stay open, given that they were closed to everything except COVID. They weren't allowing anybody else in at that point early in the in the pandemic. And then they kept the thing in place. And I think it's probably in place to this moment. I don't know. But uh, that that is distorted, been distorting the data quite a bit all the way along. Yeah, no, no, I, just, I, I think that anybody that, that's... 
Go ahead, Kelly. I was going to say, I, unfortunately, Winston, I don't think that they are ever going to complain about it. Uh, the hospitals no. and physicians have a vested interest in it. And uh, it, it was important to con- keep up the fear factor because otherwise they wouldn't have been able to uh, get people to keep doing the uh, the ridiculous things they were doing uh, and to tolerate this. So unfortunately, yeah, the numbers are grossly distorted. We will never really get an accurate count of how many people truly had COVID and how many people died from COVID, how many people were hospitalized with COVID. We'll never really get those numbers. And Kelly, I think yeah, I, I just ju- can't help but think that go, go everybody ahead. that's still radicalized at this point, and it's like, I'm trying to, you know, steal me on their side of it a little bit and mm-hmm. have some empathy. Like, I can't imagine what that must be like mentally. Like, you would truly think that right. it took your parent or what? Right. So, no, listen, right. I, I, right. I, I, I frequently find myself saying, look what we did to people. Look what we oh, did we to them. Minds. Right. Oh, my God. No. But speaking of which, I believe in Los Angeles, um, good news, everybody. I think our emergency, our medical, what do they call the emergency status we've all been in in the county yes. and the state? It's been extended for a month. It was supposed to end all today. Right. Decided to extend it a month. <laughs> oh, it's clearly a, a I, vitally necessary move. Great judgment on their part. And I think I the state has, go, said, has gone on, too. No. I said, I am not a gambler. I said, but I want early on, I said, I want to know what the over under is on extending this thing. Cause I just, they say they're going to, this is Charlie Brown and the foot, you know, Lucy in the football. She's going to pull it away. They're going to say that it's over at this date. Uh, and then in the, in the 11th and a half hour, they're going to say, no, we need one more month. They need one more month. They will extend these, uh, these additional, uh, authorities is what is all they're doing. They're they're extending additional authorities that they have by extending this quote emergency situation uh, one month longer. And the federal level, you know, Biden announced, you know, the emergency ends May 11th. You know, as I said, the, the words the arbitrary and capricious come to mind. You know, what May 11th? Well, really? Head, head, you know, yeah. Headline I'm after looking. Easter, they yeah. want Arbit- Easter's coming. So. Arbitrary and capricious. I'm looking at a headline from uh, one day ago. L.A. County to lift COVID emergency. Uh, California ends Tuesday. L.A. County will extend to March 31st because L.A. <laughs> County is so, so, so special. Mm-hmm. It's well, really- I want everybody to remember this next time you take your shoes off to board an airplane. You know, it's for <laughs> yeah, your exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. It's theater. Right. This I- is this is theater. I thought I saw that the California had even just been extended too. Did I get that wrong? Uh, anyway, whatever it is, it's all as you oh say, arbitrary God. and capricious and and harmful. That's the part that is problematic. Yes. Yes. One thing if it's yeah. just you know it has no effect whatsoever, yeah. but it's just it's harmful and they, they need to stop. They, they right. should have stopped a long time ago, but but you know here we are. Right. You well, know, well, I was thinking about the other day when you talk best, about. I appreciate you know, everybody up there. Thanks, Winston. Thanks, Winston. You know, when you talk about things that, you know, somebody say, okay, well, there's nothing harmful about putting plexiglass up, whether if it didn't work, it didn't work, but there's nothing harmful about, you know, a grocery store, a hardware store putting plexiglass, you know, plexiglass shields up. I'd say, oh, yeah, there is. If you're a mom and pop hardware store, you're a mom and pop grocery store, you're a little retail store, and you're living on a thin margin as it is, and now you've got to spend tens of thousands of dollars um, removing every other cashier and putting up plexiglass shields and buying stickers, one-way stickers for the floor of the aisle and only being, you know, allowing five people in your store at once. I stood outside 
in a line to get into the Ace Hardware because, you know, for months it was you can only allow 10 people in the store at once. Those things are harmful. We absolutely drove half of the small businesses in this country out of business permanently. 50% of all businesses that closed never reopened. Okay, so if you think that wearing masks or putting, you know, up plexiglass or, you know, limitations on capacity weren't just an inconvenience, you're wrong. We we ruined people's lives and livelihoods and decimated the economy all so that we could um, feel some level of security or safety that we were flattening a curve and we didn't do a damn thing. This is uh, Janice. I'm going to give her a chance to come on up here. Yeah. It, again, if these things had been clearly effective or even modestly effective, I, of course I would have been in favor of yeah. it. But they were, they were, it was as clearly, so obviously. All right, Jazz, what's going on? Hey, um, I've got some contributions to uh, Dr. Kelly's Unfuck It Bucket. Okay. All right. We, <laughs> oh, good. We're going to wrap up with I'm that. ready. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, the first thing we got to do is get all those emails of Fauci's, get it, get those unredacted, the transcripts for all those uh, conferences, virtual and in person and all that. All right, that's the first thing we gotta get, all right? Okay. The second thing, the second thing we gotta do, and I know it'll never happen, but the only way this is gonna work, we've gotta get him up there. Um, oh, yeah, we gotta get him up there to admit to his lies and somehow a convincing, sincere apology, him and all of his cronies for all the lies they've told and explain themselves, you know, why they did it with something that's believable. And then third, he needs to be Oh, yeah, we need uh, the engineering details extracted from him by any means necessary. You mean about the he virus? knows what they did. Well, yes, I, he knows what happened. Well, I, and then he needs well, punished. <laughs> well, well I, I, first of all, I, I appreciate, I, I love your, your passion for this, Janice, and I agree with you. With all due respect, however, those items all fit into Kelly's bucket number two. Those fall into the accountability bucket. Uh, and that's an important bucket for us to address because that account, there is no healing in this country or moving forward without accountability and without contrition, without apology uh, and ownership of, of people's participation in this. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. When I was talking about the uh, loosely called the unfuck it bucket, which I think is, is critical, it's really about coming up with scientific ways to help those people who have been harmed. Um, not that the right. accountability isn't important because it is, but my, my call to arms um, with regard to helping people, how do we call all of the bright scientific minds, the same people who perhaps yeah. are mRNA specialists and knew how to create this thing. Um, interestingly, Drew, you might find that I just read an article the other day about um, how to possibly um, help to limit the or mitigate the damage done by the spike proteins there are some vulnerabilities i'll call them on the spike protein some cleavage sites that appear to be amenable 
to cleavage from certain enzymes. And I read an article mm -hmm. out of Japan where they're using an enzyme that comes from a worm that actually seems to attack the spike protein and break it, mm -hmm. fragment it into multiple pieces that would perhaps be, be less harmful. So when I have talked about you know, the unfuck it bucket, it's saying, look, I'm not an mRNA expert, I'm not a spike protein expert, but these are the things I think we should be focusing on as a scientific community. Could you be infusing an enzyme that helps to, to rid people who have Break these globs as we, yeah. of, of spike protein stuck in their heart muscle or stuck in their kidney or whatever and, and break them up? I, and uh, as much as I love the accountability and no one would like uh, Anthony Fauci to be held accountable more than I, um, we have a mandate, I, I believe, uh, to to do the things that uh, we need to do as a scientific and medical community to help those people who have been harmed. And I'm, I am perfectly prepared to uh, hear mistakes, incompetence, explanations. I'm, I'm wide open. I, I, I want to mm -hmm. learn because I've both. been confused. Uh, and uh, right, and Dr. they should also uh, air it on and, and, on CNN. And, and we had heard, we also had heard uh, from some sources that intermittent fasting, natokinase has had some effect. And uh, again, as always, yes. I refer you to COVIDLongHaulers.com if people feel that they're having some of this long haul stuff. They've got various protocols going there that they've had some real results with. So. It, it, there's there are people out there. Maybe we should get uh, Dr. Ugender in here for the Unfuck It segment. He can talk <laughs> about some of the things they are doing over there at uh, COVID Long Hauler. Yeah. But yeah. Um, we have well exceeded our our time together. Thank you for staying for questions, yes. Kelly. Yeah. Appreciate you being here yes, today, as always. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I appreciate and, you you tolerating my delving into the uh, uh, the, the spiritual or the um, I the, love that the, stuff. The, the I love. I think. Uh, listen, you don't. Uh, you you and I have not shared these parts of our lives so much, but you know, one of the my main areas of uh, concern, or uh, what, what shall I call it, uh, and uh, so. I don't know what to call it because it's not right. I've supported this field of interpersonal neurobiology. That the mm -hmm. you know what is it that the human system does to other human systems, and you know how does that work in a clinical setting, and as I work with mommy and child, and you know how how does it create regulation and worth and sense of self and all these things. The, the, this that's what I spend a lot of my time doing before the current right. mess. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> but I like are. to see that yeah. the doctors are doing that with each other. Like the three of you have great minds and you're, you're doing the same thing with one another. That's true. Well, that's what Kelly said when she was by herself, it was the fellowship of, the, of her peers that, that helped right. pull her through. For sure. Exactly. For sure. And some, and I also think that, that the, that the patient community, the people, people, I don't, I think don't understand how profoundly this impacts truly caring physicians. I, it, it has been something that's been very difficult to watch. You know, I, I saw Dr. Yeah. Corey, you know, fall apart and you're in a testimony in front of Congress just saying, you know, I'm tired. I can't do this anymore. I can't watch this happen. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Richard Urso, who we've had on, these are brilliant scientific minds, but yeah. what makes you a great physician isn't just that. You have to have a good scientific yep. mind, which you, if you lack the humanity part and you don't have the compassion yeah. and, and understand the human condition from that perspective, um, you're sort of a robot. We, we have algorithms that can practice that kind of medicine. 
Yeah, uh, it was a little bit of a technical term, but the core of Heidegger's philosophy was care, care. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and I've always thought that that's it, that should stand at the at the head of the class. Um, so here we are. So what's coming up, Caleb? Let's put that up there on the on the uh, screen if you don't mind. We have um, oh we have Brian O'Shea who's a uh, intelligence analyst tomorrow with Dr. Lei Meng Yan who's a, a scientist, virologist, physician who worked with the coronavirus background and backbone in Hong Kong. And uh, we're going to put an intelligence uh, in, uh, intelligence expert together with uh, a virologist from who worked with the Chinese Communist Party and see how that all what we can learn. March eighth, uh, Dr. Merrill Nass, Kelly. Yes, Dr. Merrill Nass was a physician uh, who absolutely was raked over the coals by her medical board for daring to prescribe ivermectin. She was remanded to psychiatric care uh, and had her license uh, suspended. Horrific experience. Uh, and she really has a good story to to tell about that and her experience treating COVID patients. And then the uh, the next week, the 15th, uh, we have Dr. William Mackis, who is a uh, Canadian oncologist with really great experience. And he's gonna talk about what he's seeing um, with regard to uh, to the vaccines and, and his thoughts about increases in, in cancers. And then I just, uh, before the show, spoke to my friend, Bobby Kennedy, who's gonna, we aren't sure which date, uh, but the last week of the month, we're hoping that Bobby Kennedy is going to uh, be back to give us kind of an update on on where things are. As Great. everyone knows, he's he's been a real warrior in this uh, in this pandemic as well. Yes, uh, remanded to psychiatric care really is right yeah. out of the Mao playbook and the Cultural Think about Revolution. That. It's Think just about that. Un uncanny. Yep. Uncanny. Yep. All right. So, my Dr. Merrill, uh, we will. I See want to you. talk to Kennedy about aliens too. <laughs> I saw him on the news talking about that that um that meeting they had, and they were talking about the aliens flying over. Oh the boy! Head. All right, so maybe you and Kelly could do that one together. <laughs> All right, well, or maybe just okay. Susan and Ben Kennedy. Exactly. All right, guys. Yeah. He, <laughs> Yeah, I I'm, not sure, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure aliens are in my bailiwick, but I hope. Uh, but uh, I hope they're alien medical doctors. I said, well, maybe they're coming down to get the vaccine. Oh my God! Tomorrow, three o'clock for the uh, Dr. Lee Meng Yen and the uh, the intelligence officer, and then next Wednesday with Kelly. We'll see you all then. Sounds good. Thanks. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. 